0: Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the diversity and role of invertebrate life on this planet. You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Today's Pod the Lab topic is insects. Um, Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining again today for Insects Week. Um, hopefully you guys will have covered um, the lectures that were online and some of the lab material or ready to, to get into the lab re- material. And hopefully you've brought some really good questions today as well. Uh, so we've got Professor Jerry Cassis here and we've also got Thomas again. All right, look, I'll jump in and ask a question of Jerry to start off with. Um, the one that we've been starting pretty much every Q&A session with because you guys have your um, your essays due soon. But, Jerry, they have to write an essay for the public uh, to educate about the biology of a particular invertebrate and why it's connected to people. But if you had to pick one thing that the public should know about insects, uh, what would that be?
1: There's a lot of them. <laughs> There's a lot of them. There's probably... Uh, There's around 2 million described species on the planet and 60% of those are insects. And the estimate of the number of species that occur in nature is about five times that. And so the majority of the undescribed species are going to be uh, insects and other invertebrates as well. So it's the sheer diversity of them that's um, uh, remarkable. And that's one of the challenges with working with insects because it's very hard to uh, have a, a knowledge across all of those groups. So we tend to specialise, and we and a lot of people uh, in the field, in, in the entomological field, that do systematics and taxonomy, may only work on one family of of insects. So there are over a thousand families of insects, and. And so you you really need to narrow down your focus if you if you're going to make some progress on understanding their diversity, their interactions with other species, and as you said, Tracy, there's also this issue about how they uh, they impact on human life. And clearly, one question I would have for your students is, you know, how what are the sort of baseline sort of questions you would have about insects and humans and are they a, is it a positive interaction is it antagonistic do the students have any views on that
0: jerry one of the students stella has asked though if you have a favorite insect family
1: that's uh, a hard one i like a lot of them actually i'm a sort of a bit of a, uh, uh, a a jack of all trades when it comes to families i work in i work in the suborder i mean in the order hemiptera and in the suborder heteroptera and this includes groups like uh, bed bugs and assassin bugs and uh, water striders so this this suborder is really remarkable because it's found in lots of different types of habitat big habitat types and ecosystems so there are there are bugs that, that so we call them true bugs the heteroptera so they some of them are in in water, so they're truly aquatic. Some of them are semi-aquatic, and uh, and live on the surface of water, so that's why we call them water striders. There are others that uh, live in marine systems. In fact, they're the only insects that are really found out on the open oceans. Um, and so there's there's those groups, and then we have uh, groups that go from the soil, deep in the soil, right to the top of canopy. Um, so those 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 Terrestrial groups, they range in their feeding strategies. So they're, um, uh, there's predators, there's herbivores, there's omnivores, there's parasites, ectoparasites like bedbugs. So it's so a whole range of groups. So, do I have a favorite? Well, the great group, group that I work on the most may look uh, rather boring to some people. That's because they're really tiny. Some of these species get to about a millimetre in size and some of them get really large as well. But they're the group that I work on because I'm trying to unpack the diversity of these groups on a worldwide basis, but particularly in Australia. So over the last 20 years we've described maybe five, 600 new species. So, oh. so that's an indication of, of uh how little is known in about these insect, many of these insect groups in Australia? So we think there's only about 25 to 30% of Australia's insects are actually described. So.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I had no idea that there was still so much unknown diversity.
1: Shall so I go to the chat?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, this is from Hannah. You mentioned in the taxonomy lecture that many insects are yet to be described. Is it possible we have lost many important or keystone species before we have identified what important role they play in the ecosystem?
1: Uh, uh, That is a a perennial question, and I'll I'll give you an example from my own research. So taxonomy taxonomy can be seen as just the classification of organisms, but you've got to think of it also in terms of the value add to taxonomy, and we do that. So we've, we've been heavily involved in the looking at uh, insect species in New South Wales that were impacted by the black summer fires of 2019 and 2020. So, for example, we had nine species that we thought were uh, potentially uh, threatened because their distribution strongly overlapped with the firegrounds. Uh, like greater than fifty percent in some cases, almost hundred uh, percent coverage. But the the getting to your question, the the real issue is that you it's very difficult to deal with um, the vulnerability of insect species because we know either we either don't know the species or we know very little about their distribution. So I estimate in my group that twenty percent of the species that are described are only known from the locality uh, that they were described from. So that's called the type locality. So the criteria that we use in determining whether species are threatened relates to the the extent of their distribution, their, their abundances in that distribution, those sort of factors. But we often really don't know that information, let alone the groups that you point towards, Hannah, that might be undescribed. So in that case, uh, the, the the presumption you would make is, yes, the, there'll be species in there that could have an important role in, in, uh, in ecosystem functioning, uh, but we don't even know what they are. So, but I think that, I, I suspect that uh, if we are truly in what's called the sixth major extinction event on the planet, then if the majority of species on the planet are insects, then you would think that they would be, uh, particularly vulnerable, particularly because many of them are, as I said, uh, narrowly distributed.
0: Um, we hear a lot about, it's interesting you mentioned the bushfires because we hear a lot about um, koalas and, you know, the, the the fluffy things that are easy to see, but I'd never really thought about the fact that the insects could have been so heavily impacted by such a big fire.
1: Yeah, and that's still- a really good, that's a really important question uh, issue uh, Tracy because uh, uh, a a lot of the criteria that we use for determining threatened species apply equally across all taxa right so we know for example mammal distributions or vertebrate distributions in general we know those pretty well right and the same with seed plants uh, but if you try and apply those sim- the same criteria to insects which, are, which has this knowledge deficit, then you're, you're really in a very difficult situation in t- to determine or classify them as being threatened or vulnerable. So that's a challenge for us uh, going is, forward.
0: Is there a need to change those criteria then? I
1: reckon, I reckon there is. I reckon yeah. there is. and I, And I also, and you can see it you can see the problem because when you go to the national lists and the even the international lists of threatened species there there are very few invertebrates on them compared to uh, vertebrates and and, uh, and fl- flowering plants so it's a challenge and it you it's a, but how do you solve that problem do you have different criteria for different taxa right so yeah that's an ongoing debate
0: yeah that's yeah that's amazing it's really interesting discussion there because we won't know right until the the functional role is lost or we we see that's the right. the impacts then we we don't know that's only when we know something has changed
1: yeah and there's there's this also this other issue is that as you say the the functionality is an important uh, issue from a couple of perspectives one is that We don't know where they fit within the trophic sort of arrangement of species, so there could be trophic cascades that occur if you lose some species. Um, And then there's also the issue that uh, uh, a lot of these species of insects can be real environmental engineers, right? They can turn over organic matter, they pollinate, they do all those sorts of functions that we take for granted. But if we start losing not only single species, but a whole sort of guilds of species, communities of species that do similar things. Then, um, yeah, that's going to be a problem, right?
0: Yeah. To get people in working in you know insect biology ecology, what kind of skills do the students need to need to build up and have to be able to help address these problems and, and get involved in this type of issue as a career?
1: Well, there's there's a. I like to talk to students about how we might differentiate biology from a, a skills perspective, and a lot of ecology and conservation biology is very experimental, experimentally driven, and for that you need to understand key concepts in ecology, etc., and the methods, and usually a lot of statistics and those sorts of techniques. That a lot of students don't particularly. Uh, uh, think is a marvellous thing to do, but of course it's a necessary part of the trade. Whereas if you're on my side of the fence, and I'm just now talking about when I'm doing taxonomy and systematics and describing species, it's a very different type of science in that it's comparative, it's not experimental. Um, So both have their strengths and weaknesses, but clearly as we're going forward into the sort of the century of big science, we're seeing a lot of cross-fertilisation and interdisciplinarity in those sorts of experimental versus comparative uh, methods. Yeah,
0: nice. Um, Once we're allowed back outside and in nature again, have you got any tips for these guys on how to look for the insects? Like what should they look out for? How's the best way to observe them in nature and understand what's out there and try and identify which ones are known versus which ones may be unknown
1: well i'm going to say something really stupid here but (laughs) i would say is open up your eyes because they are everywhere but having said that a lot of them are cryptic so they're hiding in tiny spaces and they might be small organisms themselves so uh, if you if you turn over a rock or if you peel bark you'll see a whole you know a plethora of species under there that are specialized for those sorts of habitats Uh, And in the main, most species are associated with plants. So I I think the estimate now is between 50 and 60 percent of all species of insects that are living are associated with plants. They're either feeding on them, or or there are predators that are feeding on the herbivores, or that we can have omnivores that are feeding both insects that live on those plants, but also the plants themselves. So if you're going to if you're going to find you know a a large portion of the insect biota anywhere in the world, you look on plants. Yeah. yeah. But there are also lots of freshwater groups too. So uh,
0: Fantastic. Um, thanks, Hannah. You've jumped back in with another question. I was about to ask if you had another one to follow up. But here we go, Jerry, Hannah's asking, uh, what do you think of using native insects as biocontrols in gardens, like purchasing ladybug beetles to treat aphids? Um, are there any problems or risks for the wider ecosystem? Cool question.
1: Oh, if you, if you uh, let me get this straight, honey. You, if you're talking about using ladybugs and that they might escape from your garden and do, do some damage in, in native uh, environments, is that what you're talking about? Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Um, uh, one of the challenges we have with insects is when they become pestiferous, Obviously, their populations can really explode. And for the last 100 years, we've relied heavily on insecticides. But the problem, I'm, I'm getting to this in a roundabout way, so just, just follow me for a second. So insecticides have their own issues. And in societies like Australia, where we have strict regulations about not only the registration but the application of insecticides, uh and there's a sort of interface between people where people live and where uh, how we grow our food. There's there's a real challenge right now about the social licence for agriculture to operate. So we, since the 1960s, we've been pushed into looking at more natural controls, either through uh, the introduction of uh, exotic uh, biocontrol agents or the augmentation of predators that might be in in, in the Australian landscape. The issue with biocontrol is that it's it's often um, uh, a bit of a second cousin to in, uh, insecticides because when when insects become pestiferous, it's really hard to control them just by biocontrol. So then, what happened in the 70s and 80s was this notion of insect, integrated pest management, where we soft chemicals plus biocontrol agents plus sort of cultural practices, uh, um, agricultural practices that uh, uh, prevent some of the sort of outbreaks. In terms of using, say, say a ladybug in, uh, that might be in your garden, it might escape into uh, 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 in the environment and cause some damage. That's always a possibility uh, because in many cases, uh, those predators that... Uh, that chomp down on, on insects that are a pest, uh, often very generalised predators. So there's always a danger that they will escape. And that's happened in many parts of the world where they can cause um, uh, impacts on non target species.
0: Hannah, did that answer your question? Or have you got a follow on from that?
2: Are there any examples where, like, ladybugs have caused problems in Australia? Or using, like, lacewing wasps? Um, in yeah, the so
1: la- well, lacewings have been used a lot, uh, but th- I'd have to, I again, I don't do this sort of work, so I have to sort of trawl back in my mind and think about ladybugs. Well, they're beetles, actually, lady beetles um, uh, that uh, might have, um, bugs and mugs means something very different to beetles, but let's call it lady beetles. They, look, I don't think. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head where they've uh, become a problem in themselves, uh, but they they are. It's being used a lot in uh, uh, in many parts of the world that aren't lady beetles that I know of. There's a one of the groups that I work on. Um, Call uh, uh, disaffined bugs, and they are really interesting in that they attack other insects, but then they also attack the plants um, that they're on. So, in I've been working with colleagues in Spain, in the south of Spain, where they have um, these disaffined bugs that they've, they're mass producing, uh, they rear them and mass produce them, and they introduce them into uh, these. Polytunnels, sort of greenhouses, in the south of Spain, in the area called andalusia and they in andalusia they have um, they have so many polytunnels packed together that you can actually see them from space. That it's that extensive. So they encry- so what they grow in those polytunnels is is a lot of tomatoes. is one of the major crops that they grow. So they introduce. Um, these disafines that they've mass reared into uh, these tomato polytunnels because these these tomatoes get another insect called a white fly. So the white flies come in and start damaging the tomatoes. And then the bugs, they introduce these disafine bugs which eat uh, the white flies. But once, and they're very successful at uh, controlling the white flies. But once they've controlled the white flies and they wipe them out, they start eating on the tomatoes themselves. So there's some of these biocontrol agents can be a bit of a double-edged sword, um, but they're still using them. They use them a lot. They're using them all over the world now. We don't use them in Australia, but in Europe and, in, and now I've just got colleagues who have asked me questions about these bugs in Korea. Uh, They're mass-produced now in North America and South America. So, yeah, so biocontrol agents, you can think of, you could pass, you know, control measures of insects into insecticide, hard control, have got all those toxicity issues related to them, versus soft control like biocontrol agents and think, oh, the biocontrol agents could be, you know, much it's much more preferable, but they might have some downsides too And the example you give about them escaping from their, you know, where they've been released and invading, say, uh, natural habitats and causing problems, that has happened in in different ecosystems or different agro-ecosystems.
3: I I reckon surely there are a few cases where people have bought ladybugs, uh, lady beetles, with the intention of wiping out aphids and then realise that they actually bought some of the plant-eating lady beetles and they messed up big time. Well, that's the thing, right? We A lot of cases, we don't know the biology
1: of these organisms very well. Uh, a lot of the groups that I work on from, for decades were thought to be mostly uh, herbivores, but it turns out a lot of them are actually omnivorous. Uh, which is curious.
2: Can I ask another question? Oh, sorry.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I just was wondering if there are any, like, characteristics or features that are unique to Australian insects they aren't seen anywhere else
1: well the, the thing that's most unique about the thing that's unique about all organisms in Australia is there's a lot of endemicity. so in the groups of insects that I worked on I I, I analyzed them a few or oh, over a decade ago and found that 80% of the species in the suborder that I worked on were endemic to Australia So I would say that the endemicity of Australia's biota, insect biota, is is really, really high compared to other biogeographic regions of the world. But I'm going to tell you a really nice story about this funny little system that I'm working on that I I have funding from the Australian Research Council. I call them burglar bugs because the group that I was telling you just about the... um, the uh, the ones that are used as biocontrol agents in polytunnels. In that tribe, the tribe is called Discophany. There's an Australian genus called Sotocarus, and that genus lives on carnivorous plants. You know what carnivorous plants are, right? Like sundews and Venus flytraps and things like that. So this group of bugs has uh, evolved this adaptation of having a mud flap on its feet. So it doesn't get stuck. And what it does is it runs freely on these really uh, gummy plants, which carnivorous plants are, because they use that stickiness to catch prey, which they then feed on. My bugs run onto those plants and steal the prey of the plant. They start feeding on the prey of the plant. And that is an example of endemism. In Australia, So this genus only occurs in Australia. There's, there's, I'm just about to f- finish a manuscript of 20 new species in the genus, and I'm calling them burglar bugs because they go and steal the, the prey of a plant. So I don't know of any other ca- – there's a few odd cases uh, where uh, insects are thieving off a plant's um, capture of organisms, but this is probably the most um, – a wild one that i know of it's like really wacky uh, what what they're doing um okay so yeah endemism is probably the big issue that i see in australia that makes you know it's one of the aspects in australia that of australian insects that makes them stand out and that's to do a lot with their isolation the, the isolation of the australian continent yeah
0: fantastic uh, courtney did you have a question yeah, um, just going back to what you were talking
2: about earlier with um, threatened species. So when we hear about threatened insects, we only really hear about bees, but obviously there are many other insects that are threatened and also important for ecosystem services. Yeah. Um, do you think we don't hear about these species because the general public don't really care about insects that aren't considered cute or pretty, or is it just that there's not really enough research on them?
1: I think it's a bit of boast, probably. You know, if I if I put my you know one miller two millimeter bugs out into the general community, would they care? Well, I'd have to talk to them a fair bit to get them sort of enthused. I'd have to talk to them about burglar bugs until they you know they fell asleep. But uh, but yeah, I think a lot of the conservation uh, efforts have been. Heavily on what we call, you know, uh, enigmatic taxa so like uh, butterflies and, and bees and that people see, and a lot of them are handsome, for example. Uh, but but some of those species are truly threatened. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, does it make a difference if there, if something's a big blue butterfly that you know that's threatened and it's iconic? Uh, Versus something that's a couple of meters um, in size and is green and it doesn't look uh, to have anything really distinctive about it. I guess that's a challenge.
0: Uh, everyone, Russell has joined us as well. Uh, thank Everybody. you, Russell. Bye. Um, so please um, jump in with questions for both Jerry and and Russell as well. Uh, one of the questions that's just popped up here from Josh is: Are there frequent discoveries of new insect species through citizen? Science projects and apps like iNaturalist by non-scientists.
3: Thomas, you might have a view on that. Yeah, yeah, I'll jump into this one. A- absolutely, all the time. But th- the thing is the apps act as this kind of uh, launching pad themselves because a lot of the times the citizen science projects are based obviously on photographs. But until you really examine an insect under a microscope and look at tiny little details like the genitals it's very, very tricky often to definitively say whether something's a new species. Going back to that, you know, butterfly versus the tiny millimetre long green thing, obviously there are cases with with things like butterflies where you can be fairly confident that from a photo something is new. Uh, but with other things, iNaturalist is like the facilitator. So it'll be like someone posts a photo, an expert sees it and says this looks like it. it could be something new to me. And then they might say, you know, would you be able to go out and collect that species for me, hopefully? And then we can definitively tell if it is new or not. So as one really cool example, uh, I live out in southwestern Sydney in what's a fairly urban area, and I've spent the past 12 months doing a big biodiversity survey of this tiny little bushland fragment near my house, and about six months ago, after it was pouring rain, I found this little uh, white silverfish uh, amongst the leaf litter, and took some photos of it, uploaded it to iNaturalist. I had no clue what it was. I just said it was a silverfish. And a researcher from, I believe they're from Poland, uh, said that it was really unusual and they identified it to subfamily for me. So then I did some Googling and found out who the Australian expert in that subfamily was. Uh, I emailed him the photos. He said he'd never seen anything like it before and was pretty sure it was something new, but would need a specimen so I went back a few days later uh, managed to find another one uh, put it in ethanol sent it to him uh, he said it was a brand new species uh, and that all other species in that genus had only ever been found in caves uh, in remote New South Wales and this one was just in the middle of uh, urban Sydney uh, and so that's now been described and, and that paper is about to be uh, submitted uh, and so that's a brand new one that pretty much if I hadn't submitted it to iNaturalist I would have just you know, uh, ticked it off as another silverfish, maybe the same one that you see scurrying around your house all the time. So it was only through that avenue of citizen science where an expert could see it and then it passed on through the chain that I was able to figure out that it was actually something brand new. And there are certainly many examples of that happening all the time. And to just round off the answer, one of the most powerful parts of citizen science in terms of this finding new species is that these platforms create this global community where instead of in the past, if you find something new, you might have to uh, mail uh, mail it to a professor and then it might spend weeks before it even comes back to you. You can message someone uh, and have someone comment on your observations from the other side of the planet in real time. And you have this incredible collaboration, uh, which then allows people to actually go back out, collect more specimens and discuss features. Uh, so certainly it's it's something that happens quite a lot and is quite an exciting part of citizen science
0: that must be amazing for all of you working in insects that discovery that you have like on your doorstep right in front of you
4: it's really amazing here in australia so many things are still unknown and not only new species that we could find really locally so my experience was coming here from canada and finding one of the commonest and largest and most sort of distinctive and striking species of flies that occurs very commonly around sydney and finding that it's an undescribed species and we've been studying it for the past 15 years and we published lots of papers on it it turned out to be a really useful system for doing research Uh, And nothing was known about it. And we're now working on some stick insects that no one had ever studied before. And it's just amazing how even the large kind of spectacular insects around Australia often are completely unknown. And you can find this stuff right around the city. You can find stuff in your backyard that's really unknown. And it can be things that turn out to be really ecologically important, but also really important for science for answering fundamental questions. Just very useful kind of systems to answer fundamental research questions.
0: Uh, one of the things we learned about in the last week was, was symbiosis and the continuum of symbiotic interactions. They must be an important part of insect life as well and part of your research of understanding who these species are, what they interact with, and, and what their role is. Can can you guys comment on the role of symbiosis for insects?
4: Uh, insects are involved in many uh Kinds of symbiosis, especially with plants. Um, and so th- there are some, I-, I guess, famous cases of uh, coevolution of things like ants with acacias, uh, where the ants defend the acacia and the acacia creates little homes for the ants or provides food for them.
0: Um,
4: there are many other cases of coevolution uh, of insects and plants, and insects and fungi, and insects and other insects. Um, so the, it, it's a very rich area of, of research, and it's also, uh, it, it, especially the interactions between insects and plants are massively important ecologically and important also for, for people in terms of things like agriculture. Um, are there any, uh, do any of the s- students have uh, particular questions about uh, any of this or symbioses between insects and other animals or other, other organisms that we might be able to answer?
0: Um Russell can you tell us about the importance of of invertebrate communication in your research
4: so we some of our work is on uh, behavior behavior of course is very important in terms of uh, determining who gets to reproduce and and how um, different organisms interact animals interact with other with other with each other and with uh, and with with plants and with other organisms and so I have done some research on behavior in various kinds of flies in particular sexual behavior sexual selection behavior that's under sexual selection. Uh, my, my group is now working a lot on uh, several species of stick insects and we're looking at uh, sexual behavior in stick insects. We're particularly interested in their, uh, their behavior uh, because many stick insects have this amazing ability to switch between sexual and asexual reproductive modes and so we're looking at whether there's actually conflict over mating, for example, whether it might be in the interest of the male to mate, but in the interest of the female to avoid mating, because she can reproduce without mating. She can reproduce, uh, she can lay unfertilized eggs that will hatch and develop into perfectly viable offspring. So behavior is really important in that uh, it, it determines the outcomes of these kind of interactions. And it's also very, very interesting. It's very spectacular, often even little, little tiny creatures Do amazing things if you look at them under a microscope or you look at them with a just a, you just observe them carefully, you see them doing really amazing things. There are a few examples in in the lecture that I hope you looked at.
0: Uh Jerry, you talked early on, I think before we started recording this, about the longevity of insects. And I think that that kind of parallels with what Russell was saying about the ability to of insects to change of different species to change their um their modes of reproduction and things how how long have insects been important on the planet
1: well they sort of uh, first appear in the fossil record at the silurian devonian boundary just over 400 million years ago or around about um and so the the uh they've been on the planet continuously for that period of time and and through that time we've had evolution of not only uh, millions of species, but higher taxa have uh, have come come into place, and they are very often very very different groups. But there's two major two major breaks in the uh, evolution of insects. One is the those insects that that fly and those that don't, and obviously uh, flight is a, a huge advantage and a, a, a real driver of diversification. Of uh, of uh, adaptations for life on on Earth and uh, exploiting plants, exploiting other organisms that aren't plants. So that long history is, um, you know, it's fundamentally one of the most dominant, if not the most dominant, interaction uh, on the planet. That that is with plants, and uh, and we see that today. We and that's one of the main things that I do in my lab is looking at the the evolutionary um, interactions between uh, particularly flowering plants but also uh, non-flowering plants and the groups of insects that I work on. So <laughs> at the moment, for example, where I've got two large projects with, working with botanists where they do a phylogenetic evolutionary tree and I do one on the insects and we look at those interactions across what we call a co-phylogenetic interface uh, to see whether the patterns are being driven by um, uh, a sort of antagonistic uh, arms race where the species might uh, evolve in concert uh, versus where, uh, major host-switching events that are driven by other factors, uh, including abiotic factors. So that interaction with and the longevity of that interaction of insects with uh, plants is, is uh, a really cool aspect of life on Earth, 400 million years. Uh, insects and plants have
0: been together in some fashion. Uh, we do have one question that's popped into the chat. Uh, what are some theories on the evolution of bioluminescence?
4: In some species, it's quite clear that bioluminescence uh, serves uh, in communication. For, for example, uh, it might serve to uh, attract prey, uh, it might serve to frighten or startle predators. Uh, it, it, in some species of insects, it clearly serves uh, a function in uh, sexual signaling. So courtship, essentially, uh, there are um, insects that, uh, especially fireflies, are the best known uh, system where Males produce a, a pattern of bioluminescence that's visible in the dark, and then uh, females I- identify males of their own species based on the pattern, and they can signal back by flashing back, and the male will go toward the light. Um, so, in in some cases, it's quite clear what the function is, and it's all and it's in some sort of communication within a species, or uh, some sort of deception, or some sort of effort to to deter. Another uh, members of another species, but in, in other cases we see bioluminescence in creatures that don't really even don't have don't even have eyes um, or don't have a brain. We don't really know what the function is in that case. So it might still have something to do with startling predators that do have eyes, but in many cases it's just unknown because these things do it somewhere in the deep ocean, and we don't know much about about how they live and so forth.
0: Uh, Hannah, did you want to ask a question?
2: Yeah, I think the peacock spider is so cute, and so I hated watching him getting devoured by the female. I was wondering, if do they ever develop any strategies to avoid being devoured?
3: Well,
4: the whole courtship dance probably is, is a strategy to do that, um, in that uh, the male is clearly kind of trying to avoid Putting himself at risk of the female, you know, eating him, essentially jumping on him and eating him. Um, in some spiders, there's actually evidence that there is no advantage to males to avoid getting eaten because uh, males generally can only mate twice in their life. Because every time they mate, they insert the, the specialized arms that they use to transfer packets of sperm, and they stick the little arm into the female gonopore, and then it breaks off and it forms a kind of plug. But once they've done that twice, they have nothing left to to use. So essentially, they're done. And uh, if they can get eaten, and if getting eaten either provides some sort of nutrients to that might uh, contribute to the development of their offspring, um, or if getting eaten somehow reduces the probability that the female will try to remate, maybe with a different male, something like that, then it could be advantageous to the male to get eaten. But in in the peacock spiders uh it's certainly hugely advantageous to the male to to avoid getting eaten before he's managed to mate so that a lot of the courtship is sort of like this really cautious kind of dance around the female trying to um, show off his his beautiful markings and behaviors but without putting himself into danger and similar things occur in other cannibalistic uh sexually cannibalistic systems like in mantids, where the female can uh, often eat kill and eat the male during mating so males uh, in some species um, avoid uh, females that are really hungry and that look like they're more likely to, to kill them. Um, in some species, uh, there's this huge struggle that happens where uh, the female tries to kill the male and the male tries to grasp the female. Uh, so a former student of mine is working on a mantis in New Zealand um, where actually the females can reproduce without mating, which adds an interesting sort of element to the whole thing. But there's there's almost always this kind of a struggle and if the male manages to grasp the female then usually he can mate successfully but if the female grasps him first then she will kill him and eat him and what happens is because they're predators and they have these raptorial forelegs with big spines uh males during the struggle can often injure females um and females can leak hemolymph the insect equivalent of blood out of their abdomens and they will often die from their injuries if they don't manage to grasp the male first. So it's this really kind of nasty struggle. It's, a, it's part of a more general sort of phenomenon called sexual conflict, where the interests of the sexes might be quite different. And in, in particular, over the outcomes of interactions like, like whether mating occurs or not. So it might be advantageous for males to mate, but advantageous for females to avoid mating either at all as in perhaps these mantises, or mating too many times. Often there's an optimal sort of number of matings beyond which it's disadvantageous for females to mate again. game. So there are all these struggles and things like this.
0: Um,
2: with the, um, the sticking insects that you're studying, when the females mate uh, reproduce asexually, is it done when it's just kitten? Is it a matter of convenience? Or like what would drive the choice to do that?
4: Well, it's thought that it, the ability to reproduce asexually through, through what's called parthenogenesis uh, evolves in species in which maybe it's difficult for individuals to find each other, and so there's a risk to females of just never coming across a male. And so, in a in a species that that's sex, obligately sexual, where females have to mate to successfully reproduce, if a female never comes across a male, she will have zero fitness; none of her eggs will develop. So, there would be selection in those cases for the ability to develop without, uh, to, to lay eggs that can develop without fertilization. But we've also found in the species that we've been looking at uh, evidence of sexual conflict. So, that at least in some contexts, it's actually better for the female to avoid mating ever. So, just to reproduce uh, parthenogenetically without ever mating. Because mating often can be quite costly. Uh, those mantids I mentioned are sort of a striking example where males actually injure females uh, as part of, uh, of mating. But mating could be costly because of the chemicals that males transfer to females, because of sexually transmitted pathogens, um, for all kinds of other reasons. So interestingly, in the stick insects, we've looked at several species, and there's a huge range of effects of mating on females. There are some species where we find no evidence of costs of mating, other species where we, we're finding evidence that it's better to avoid mating, so the level of conflict might be very different across species. I
3: don't know if that kind of answers. And G- I was going to say, Jerry, you get the same thing obviously in bugs as well with things like traumatic insemination in a lot of groups. Yeah,
4: yeah.
1: I've got one PhD student looking at that, not so much from the cost, but just the uh, how the animals come together uh, in the in the genital structures. So in bed bugs, the the uh, the males. Uh, uh, circumvent the female tract and inject uh, sperm into into the hemolymph of the of the females directly through a puncture in the side of the abdomen. But and, and then there's this sort of coevolutionary, uh, in a sense, a co-evolutionary dance between the males and the females, where the males de- uh, the females develop perigenital structures uh, to to limit the damage to them.
0: Oh, that's a great discussion uh, anyone else have any any questions um,
4: um yeah I have a question why insects have co-evolved
1: so closely with other species compared to other groups I don't I don't know per se whether they've evolved more but the but the the, the relationship that I've talked about already with insects and plants is so closely tied that we we, we tend to focus on that yeah um, but there's also a lot of insects, so and and their uh, their habits can often be really uh, restricted. And so, within within a local environment, they you know they uh, there's a lot of uh, interplays that are going on between uh, various species. So, but insects and plants are the main the main groups that I at least look at in terms of, uh, and a lot of entomologists look at in terms of uh, sort of coevolutionary relationships.
3: I have a, a quick question, uh, a bit of a chicken chicken or egg question. Wh- which came first, the use of the term bug for Hemiptera or the use of the term bug for any kind of insect or arthropod or creepy crawly in general? Well, I, I'll, as I said before, we call bugs true bugs,
1: and that's because the bug workers got uh, pretty peeved that everybody started using the word bug for the, you know bacteria or any other thing that bothered people. So I, I would claim that just on that basis alone, we have it first. It's, it's called uh, name priority.
4: So I just looked this up. Uh, apparently, the word bug comes from Middle English, meaning something frightening. Sorry, Jerry. <laughs> I
1: can go beyond Middle English. If you, I can go to ancient Greek. If you, yeah, familiar. okay. What, would, what,
4: mean in, what does it mean in Greek?
1: I'm just. I have to look that up. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> it comes from the, the the Greek word for bug is chorus. Mm. So often you see the a uh, uh, generic name with the uh, suffix chorus. Mm. So,
0: nice. It's been a great discussion. Uh, have you got any any more questions? This is the the best time to to ask the experts. Um, anything that you think might come up in the exam? Uh, Hannah has asked. Uh, uh, Russell, has any of your research or insect research in general shed light on um, on human behaviours?
4: Human behaviours, yeah. I mean people so not my research some specifically but people there are labs that study insect brains and also the nervous system of even much much simpler things the little nematode worms that don't even have a brain but they have a nerve net and the one of the aims of that research is to gain general insights into how n- nerves work how neurons work and how how uh, neural nets work to make brains that can that can think and can, can make decisions and uh, the hope of course is that by taking a really simple system like like a little tiny nematode worm that has exactly 302 neurons we can actually gain some really fundamental insights into how all nervous systems work and old brains work. And so there are people that work on these little tiny worms um, and there also uh, there's quite a lot of work on on the brains of fruit flies, Drosophila. and they have thousands and thousands tens of thousands of neurons, much much more complex brains and it one of the one of the curious things is that um, we actually still we're not anywhere close to understanding how the brain of a fruit fly works and they can do some really amazing things. Uh, if, you look, if you've ever kind of observed closely how, how a fly flies, uh, they're incredible aerial acrobats. And one of the things that I find really amazing is that they can do these things very, you know, within a few minutes of uh, emerging as an adult from the puparium. So if there's any learning involved, it's incredibly brief. So how the heck do they do that? How can they do that without learning? And so their brains are complex enough that they can uh, enable them to do these amazingly complex behaviors. And we really still have almost no idea how they do this. But the hope is that if we can gain a, a, a a, a slightly better understanding of how the brain of a fruit fly works, then maybe we can start to gain a better understanding of how our own brains work which are, you know, many orders of magnitude larger and more complex, but perhaps in, in their fine structure, not so different from the brain of referred to Nice,
0: That's fantastic. Uh, we have a question from James as well. Uh, given insects are found so abundantly, why have they never evolved to exist in the ocean? Is there a biological limiting factor or is it simply due to competition?
1: Well, I might answer that you know, uh, from a historical perspective. Insects were always thought to be uh, most closely related to myriapods. That includes groups like centipedes and um, millipedes and some other funny little groups called poropods and some vilans. But now through the advent of genomic data, uh, it's very clear that um, insects are just a specialised group of crust- pan crustaceans, so they're now nested within the in what we normally would have called the crustacean. that group is now called the pancrustacea so they're just uh, they're just a group of uh, of uh, pancrustaceans that have basically uh, become terrestrialized and then secondarily secondarily go into freshwater and then there's just this few groups like water stri- water strider relatives that are out in the open oceans there are groups that are closer to shore Uh, But uh, in the main, the open ones have been not a group that um, living insects have exploited to any great extent.
4: One of the kind of, I could just add a a little bit to that, uh, one of the adaptations that insects have to a terrestrial lifestyle is uh, the way they breathe through tracheoles. So maybe that system makes it a bit more difficult for them to to, uh, reinvade the water. I mean, there are insects that, uh, that live in the water, but they have various things like air bubbles around them or um, that, that sort of thing. Or, they, or they've secondarily evolved uh, evolved gills. Um, but I guess it's a fairly big step it, 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 from that kind of adaptation to uh, breathing air through tracheoles to being able to breathe in the water. So that might sort of make it more difficult for insects to return to the water, so to speak.
0: Russell, Jerry, anything um, in particular you think that the the students should keep in mind from, from your lectures and from Insects Week as they go into the rest of the course?
4: For me, I would say it's that insects are still amazingly poorly known. We still were just starting to scratch the surface and they're very complex and very interesting and they can tell us they can answer general questions that are applicable to ourselves and all living things and so they're great systems for research and of course they're enormously complex ecologically uh and enormously important ecologically and so uh i really like insects i've been working on them for many years me too <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I would say i would say something
1: else and completely endorse what russell said but uh if you're if you're uh, and now i'm proselytizing, so you know um, Close your eyes if you don't like it, but uh, there are many careers that uh, you can have by studying insects. So there's applied research in in agriculture, for example, and many entomologists that are required in those fields. In that field, but also, that as Russell said, there we know so little of insects on the planet, let alone knowing all the species and what they do. So uh, it's it's a it's a, a really good field to go in to for a career because it's there's so many discoveries to be made and i teach some of it in my third year course so now i'm now promote self-promoting but i've got a course called assembling the tree of life where we talk a, a lot about insects in terms of their evolution and discovery
0: oh, that's great i was actually about to ask you both if there's any courses you'd recommend for the students after this if they they want to continue in insect research or insect careers. In
4: addition to Jerry's course on the Tree of Life, there, there's a, an animal behavior course. Uh, I think it's a second year course that, where the insect behavior is part of it. And there's a third year course uh, that I teach on evolution where we also uh, look at many insect examples. And the whole course is structured around independent projects that students do. And many students end up working on insects, including insect behavior and insect ecology. And then if you're interested in insects, uh, of course, after you finish your three years of coursework, you can do honors projects on insects. There are several labs that uh, do research on insects or related to insect ecology, and so you can find a variety of honors projects um, related to insects.
0: It uh, definitely sounds, oh, sorry it definitely sounds like if anyone's interested in discovering new species, then insects is the place to, to be.
3: Uh, can I just tack on as well? Uh, once you get into third year, you can also do the field-based courses, uh, advanced field biology, and and life in arid lands. Where, as Russell said, that they're ones all, that also involve where you can do a personal project that you get to decide on, and that's a great opportunity to do insect-related field work. So you go out into the bush or out into the desert, and you know you set pitfall traps, and and you then get that great combination of both the theory in in some of the other courses as well as then actually going out into the field and then of course jerry's course has got uh the field component uh as well so it's i think it's really good to get the best of both worlds uh both the theory and the practical aspect
0: yeah absolutely i think in one thing in invertebrate biology in general is is that learning how to look it's um it's really important um and that's a big part of when i take people under the reef as well is just to sl- to get used to slowing down and looking at the little, the little things and the little details, and a whole new world opens up. Um, Jerry, did you have anything you wanted to add?
1: Well, I just I, I'm looking at the chat, and Josh said uh, insects are great. So uh, you know, I think we've uh, we've convinced somebody that uh, you know it's worth studying. And there, and of course, uh, it's great to see people doing the invertebrates course in general. Uh, so many fascinating groups that we know very little about and we need people like you to uh, dig deep into these uh, organisms
0: thank you for listening to the pod the lab invertebrate biology series podcast for any more information regarding the content in this course please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au